Let's pray. Lord, we depend on you to speak to us this morning. We need you. It's just air passing over vocal cords without your spirit, anointing the words and anointing our ears to hear. So Lord, we ask, we are desperate for your word, that you would change us, that we would hope in you, that we would depend on you. We would trust in you and believe in you today. So bless this time that we have together in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the news that no parent ever wants to hear. The very thing that every parent fears and prays will never happen. Your son is dying and there's nothing I can do about it, the doctor said. And so they turned to every other means that they could think of, home remedies, local faith healers, additional sacrifices and offerings at the temple, and prayers upon prayers upon prayers upon prayers for healing to Jehovah and then to the multitudes of other gods that purported healing powers, all to no avail. Day upon day, they watched as their son's health deteriorated, his passing seemingly imminent. Their options had been exhausted, and along with them, so too had their hope. As they tried to make the best of each remaining day without giving in to their grief, rumor of another so-called miracle worker made its way to them. According to reports, this guy had apparently performed numerous miracles at the Passover in Jerusalem. Some of their friends said that they had even seen these miracles with their own eyes. But even if this latest healer really had the power to heal their son, he was so far away, Jerusalem was so far away, that there was really no chance of getting their son to him on time or in time. But then word came that this miracle worker had traveled to a nearby town that was only about 15 miles away. Maybe, just maybe, he would agree to come and see their son. Maybe, just maybe, this one would be different. This guy would be legit and be able to heal their little boy. Now, you can almost feel their apprehension and even daring to hope that he could. All of these other things they had tried and ended in disappointment. Every time that they had dared to hope ended in deeper hopelessness. What if it's just the same result? Why bother asking, hoping when chances are the outcome will just be the same? What if it's simply God's will that our son dies and seeking healing is just an exercise in futility, frustration, and further disappointment? Have you ever experienced such thoughts or feelings when undergoing adversity in your life? You struggle with the tension of God's 
sovereignty. On the one hand is his sovereign will, and on the other is your heart's desire for an end to your or someone else's adversity, to an end of their suffering. What if they are not one and the same thing, his sovereign will and your heart's desire? Experience tells you that much of the time your prayers are not answered according to your requests. What you've asked for and what you've gotten have often been two very different things. We see in Scripture God's disposition towards sickness and healing and the numerous time, times that He heals. And so we pray for healing and yet it doesn't come. We see in Scripture that God desires all men to be saved and so we pray for the salvation of a loved one and yet they remain in rebellion and unbelief. We see in Scripture time and again God delivering His people from adversity, and so we ask for such a deliverance from our or another's adversity. And yet it doesn't come. It's an ongoing tension, a tension that everyone feels in relation to this sovereign God. And so what does it look like to believe amidst His sovereignty? What does it look like to hope in Him, to persistently trust in Him and not resign ourselves to our circumstances or situations? This morning we come to John 4, 43 through 54, which is the story of this father approaching Jesus and begging Him to heal His son. So let's read together. After two days that Jesus had spent in the town of Sychar and Samaria, Jesus departed once again for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own, ta- own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to Capernaum and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So John calls this the second sign that Jesus did. This isn't Jesus' second miracle. He had performed several miracles in Jerusalem. But John doesn't say that those other miracles were signs. He says that what Jesus did here was a sign. The miracle itself 
along with the way in which Jesus did it. This entire event signified something. Just like the water into wine miracle signified Jesus' superiority to the ceremonial law. Well, this miracle or miraculous event signified Jesus' sovereign freedom and what belief in Jesus looks like in relation to it. Through this event, Jesus demonstrates that he has both the unlimited power and absolute freedom to act according to his good purposes. He is not constrained by anyone's assumptions or expectations. He will not be fit into anyone's box. Further, John has recorded these things so that we might believe. He has written this account to persuade us that Jesus is fully deserving of our persistent, ongoing, recurring, repeated trust. And so, we also see what it does, Jesus' sovereignty does and does not look like, to believe in Jesus amidst His sovereignty. I've broken it down into three points for you guys on your notes. First point, belief amidst Jesus' sovereignty is persistent trust that He is sovereign. That one makes sense, right? That is, we first must believe that He is sovereign. What does it mean to be sovereign? It means that He is free to do whatever He pleases, and He possesses the unlimited ability to bring what He pleases to pass. Let me say that again. He is free to do whatever he pleases, and he possesses the unlimited ability to bring whatever he pleases to pass. He is in no way limited or constrained by his creation. Jesus is free, unencumbered, and unrestrained by the laws of nature and the whims and expectations of people Let's look briefly at how both of these ideas are clearly portrayed in this passage. First, we see the request from the official for Jesus to perform the miracle, to do something that would supersede the laws of nature. And Jesus not only does it, he not only performs a supernatural act of healing, demonstrating his power over the laws of nature, but he does it instantaneously from 15 miles away. Jesus is demonstrating his superiority over time, over space, over matter, over everything. None of these things can limit his power. He is not bound by any of them. He can pray for somebody in Asia. Guess what? He's not like, oh, he's so far away. He's not. All of creation is at his absolute discretion. There is no time, nor place, nor situation where Jesus cannot act. He is absolutely free to bring about whatever his purposes are, whenever, wherever, and however he deems right. He is sovereign. Now, it was not only the fundamental components of nature that would have been thought to restrain Jesus' freedom, 
but so too the expectations of those around him. It's pretty interesting. Uh, I think kind of funny the number of times Jesus disappoints the expectations of those around him. Here in this story, we're told that the Galileans welcomed him. That is, there was a mass of people there in Cana who had come to see Jesus. Many of them had been in Jerusalem and had either seen or heard of the miracles that Jesus had done. Doubtless, when they returned home, they told their family members and friends. Still others had unquestionably heard of the miracle that Jesus had performed there in Cana earlier, the water into wine. And so, they have gathered, just waiting to see this miracle worker work his miracles. Woo! You coming? You coming to see Jesus do the stuff? And yet, as far as we're told, Jesus doesn't do a single miracle before their eyes. They came anticipating the fireworks, waiting with bated breath to witness his signs and wonders. They believed that it would happen. It's going to happen. He's going to do these miracles. Get ready. A multitude had gathered to greet him and to celebrate his miracle working powers. And he leaves them empty handed. The expectation of the crowd was for Jesus to do public miracles. And yet, as far as we know, only one person and his family, his household, walked away having seen a miracle. And them in another town. When everyone expects Jesus to reveal himself to the masses, he conceals himself from them and only reveals himself to a desperate father. He would not be guided by their expectations. He would not fit into their boxes. It reminded me of that scene in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan departs. The kings and the queens are bewildered and inquire of Mr. Beaver, who says of Aslan, he's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. This phrase is repeated multiple times throughout the books. By this phrase, the characters were indicating that Aslan was free. He was unrestrained and independent of the whims of the individuals and circumstances around them. Kings and queens were like, we need you. Come do this. He was not a tame lion. Aslan was sovereign over Narnia. Well, Aslan represented Jesus in these books, and Lewis was communicating that Jesus was not tame. He was not beholden to the expectations of others. We also see Jesus' sovereign freedom in relation to the child's father. The father has a definitive idea in his mind as to how his child can be healed. 
And so he asked Jesus to come to Capernaum. But Jesus doesn't. First, Jesus challenges him and all of those around him about his and their unbelief, which is probably the last thing the father wanted to hear or talk about. Don't you understand? My son is dying. And so the father further urges Jesus, come, come, come to Capernaum. You can lay hands on my son and he can be healed. Jesus doesn't go. Rather, he simply gives the father a word and beckons the father to believe his word. It had to be a massive stretch of faith for the father. Why couldn't Jesus just do what he wanted him to do? Why couldn't he just be inconvenienced enough to come down and lay his hands on his son? Because Jesus is not a tame lion. He will not be maneuvered or manipulated by anyone to do what they want when they want it. Jesus will not be domesticated. Jesus is sovereignly free. Number two, belief amidst Jesus' sovereignty is persistent trust in him unconditionally. That is, we are called to believe, to persistently trust in Jesus whether or not he meets our expectations. Whether or not he heals or brings deliverance or acts in accordance with our prayers, we are to believe in him because of who he is, not because of what he might be able to do for us in the here and now. That one's kind of hard. As we've already seen, the Galileans had welcomed him because they had seen the signs and wonders that Jesus had done in Jerusalem, and they were anticipating that he was going to do them here in Galilee. But I want you to notice the reason John gives for Jesus coming back to Galilee. He says, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus from Galilee? Yeah. So essentially, what John is saying is, after two days, Jesus returned home because prophets don't receive honor in their own home. Well, that's, that's strange. It gets stranger. For how is it that it can be said that he received no honor in his own hometown when the crowd welcomed him? Come on, Jesus! It's because of the reason that they welcomed him. They welcomed him as the local hometown miracle worker rather than honoring him as the Messiah. Their lips praised him, but their hearts were far from him. Jesus recognized this. He recognized the nature of their hearts because what did he say? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Yes, he, 
He spoke these words to the Father, but also to everyone else. Because the yous in the passage, which we don't see in English, are plural. He says, unless all y'all believe or see signs and wonders, all y'all will not believe. They would not believe that he was a prophet, let alone the Messiah, unless Jesus performed these signs and wonders. They so craved to see. They were not honoring him for who he was, but they welcomed him because they sought signs and wonders. And they recognized that Jesus could be the vehicle through which they could get these things. And if he performed well, hey Jesus, if you meet these standards, we'll believe in you. So why didn't Jesus perform the miracles before their eyes if indeed the people would believe? Well, because such a belief is not true belief. Their belief was conditional. If Jesus does X, uh, uh, then I'll believe. If Jesus heals my loved one, then I will believe in him. If Jesus gives me this thing, then I'll give him what he wants from me. Such a belief was really unbelief. Why? Well, first of all, if they were dictating the conditions upon which they would believe... Who occupies the place of sovereign in that relationship? Mm. If, if they are, if I am imposing my demands, my requirements, and my conditions that he must acquiesce to, then I'm attempting to be the sovereign in the relationship, aren't I? But remember the first point who's sovereign? Who's sovereign? Thank you. Who's sovereign? He is not subject to us, nor our demands, nor our conditions. He is not a tamed lion. Jesus will not be coerced or manipulated by us in order to earn our allegiance or devotion. He is worthy of our allegiance and devotion unconditionally, period. He is worthy of our allegiance and devotion. Full stop. Further, such a belief was idolatrous at its core. You mean belief can be idolatrous? Yeah. Think about it. Who is at the center of that belief? They would believe in him not because of who he is, not for his glorious character, not because of his majesty, but because of the stuff that he would give them, because of the things that he could do for them. They're treating him like a genie, someone or something that they could use to produce the things that they really love. Mm. Idolatry. Who was the one being loved 
in such a scenario. They're only loving Jesus insofar as he provides for their first loves. Heard a great analogy from John Piper that illustrates this point. He said, if we are not captured by his, Jesus' personality and character, then all of our declarations of belief are like the trust of a wife in her husband to provide the money that she needs to maintain her affair with another man. Ouch. If we are not captured by Jesus' personality and character, then no matter how much we say we would believe, our belief is like a trust of a wife and her husband to provide for her to have an affair with someone else. Even though welcoming the Galileans are forsaking their husband, Jesus, and going after a paramour, their true loves, and to make matters worse, they are asking Jesus to fund the idolatry. True belief in Jesus as the Messiah has no conditions. True belief is first and foremost a delight in the beauty and excellency of Jesus' character and nature. It is not contingent upon transient earthly desires, whims, or expectations. Let me say that again. True belief is first and foremost a delight in the beauty and the excellency of Jesus. It's not contingent upon transient earthly desires, whims, or expectations. He is the Messiah, whether or not He performs the miracles that I want Him to perform. But, but I'll know that He loves me if He does these things for me. Miracles aren't proof of His love, folks. The cross is. The cross what Jesus did on the cross to pay for sin and to restore relationship with, with God is the proof of His love. True belief is loving Him because of who He is, the sovereign miracle working Lord, the caring and compassionate Messiah, the fiery prophet, the untamed lion, and the sacrificial lamb. True belief loves and rejoices in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, full stop. Do you unconditionally believe in Jesus? Do you believe in, trust persistently in Jesus, regardless of whether or not he heals your loved one? Do you believe in, pers persistently trust in Jesus regardless of whether or not he delivers you from your adversities? Do you believe in, persistently trust in Jesus regardless of whether or not he provides that thing that you so dearly desire? The house, the car, the job, the raise, the vacation, the... Fill in the blank. Do you persistently trust in him whether or not he answers your prayers according to your desires. Do you trust in him because he is absolutely worthy of your allegiance? 
because of who he is and his work on the cross. That is true belief. Number three, amidst Jesus' sovereignty is persistent trust in this life through prayer and supplication. Belief amidst Jesus' sovereignty is persistent trust in this life through prayer and supplication. All right. So far, the points that we have discussed are the easy part of believing amidst Jesus' sovereignty. What? That wasn't easy. Well, the first part was was believing something about Jesus. The second was really identifying belief in Jesus for salvation. But now we move to a third type of belief. What it looks like to believe Jesus in our day-to-day lives, persistently trusting Him for the cares and concerns of this mortal life also. What does it look like to believe in Him for the desires of your heart in the here and now in light of His sovereignty? What does it look like to believe in Him for the desires of your heart in the here and now in light of this sovereignty? This is where the tensions arise that I mentioned at the beginning. The place where faith, fears, doubts, and belief in Jesus for one's daily needs and hardships intersect with His sovereign will. In other words, His Son was still dying. The man still had his earthly needs that he so desperately wanted addressed by Jesus. Yes, Jesus had addressed this man's true spiritual need of belief for eternal life. And it appears that at some point here, the man believed in Jesus, though that faith may have been the size of a mustard seed. And it was enough. But there was still the issue of his beloved son. I mean, now that this spiritual condition was addressed, was he no longer to be concerned over his son's sickness? Was he to take no part or responsibility in Jesus' sovereign plan for his son's physical life, or for his own for that matter? Now, I attempted to envision myself in this man's position, trying to imagine the several scenarios that must have been running through his head. First, he doesn't want to presume that Jesus must or will heal his son. That would be to deny Jesus' sovereignty. But he also doesn't want to presume that Jesus won't heal his son, because that too would deny Jesus' sovereignty. So what is he to do? He believes Jesus can heal his son, and he also believes in Jesus regardless of whether he heals his son. So how does he exercise belief in Jesus and his sovereignty at this point? Does it look like simply resigning himself to whatever will be? taking a laissez-faire approach to life, saying to himself, "Ah, if it's Jesus' will for my son to be healed, 
then he'll be healed regardless of whatever I do. And if it's his will for him to die, then he'll die regardless of what I do. Is this what belief in Jesus' sovereignty is supposed to look like? Is the Father, indeed, are we to take a completely passive role in light of Jesus' sovereignty? Some people might assume that after hearing these words from Jesus, the Father simply turned for home, singing, K, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be, because Jesus wills it. But that's not what happens, is it? That is not what belief in God's sovereignty looks like, passively resigning oneself to whatever happens. Belief is active. Belief is persistent trust. Therefore, belief in and under Jesus' sovereignty is active. And it expresses persistent trust in the here and now. What the Father does is He exercises His belief in Jesus' sovereignty by taking an active role, pleading with Jesus to exercise His sovereign power. Sir, come down before my child dies. In essence, He prays to Jesus which is exactly what we are exhorted to do as believers. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, prayer is a core expression of belief in God's sovereignty. Prayer is a core expression of belief in God's sovereignty. Indeed, God's sovereign will is one of the very reasons that we should pray. Think about it. Think about this. God isn't going to ever do something that isn't His will. Does that make sense? If He does, then He isn't God. God isn't ever going to do something that isn't His will. And then He gives us all of these commands to pray, which which means God often uses our prayers and requests to bring about His sovereign will. Like the father asking Jesus to heal his son. The father appeals to Jesus' sovereignty and his request. What? You might have missed it because of the wording in your version. The father says, Curious. That is, Lord, sovereign one, come before my child die. He's appealing to the nature and character of Jesus at this point. He understands who he is because of what he said. He appeals to his power and his compassion, to both Jesus' ability and his disposition. So too must we. We must have a basic grasp 
of not only Jesus' ability, but of his disposition toward us, as well as toward the things of this world. Now, we've already discussed the fact that Jesus can do anything that he wants to do, that he's the power to do whatever he pleases. Let's take a moment to examine his disposition toward believers, toward you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He loves his people with an everlasting love. What does it mean to love? Love is a commitment to the highest lasting good of its object, even if at great cost to oneself. Love is a commitment to the highest lasting good of its object. Love seeks what is best for that person. It acts on their behalf for their lasting benefit, seeking their best interests. This was Jesus' disposition toward this man, and it's his disposition toward you who trust in him. And so the man pleads with Jesus, Lord, come down before my son dies. <laughs> and get this. Jesus healed him. But wait. Wait a minute. No, no, no. No, no. Didn't you hear what Jesus said to the guy? Didn't you? He chastened him and the whole crowd for their conditional belief. And Jesus, because he is sovereign, healed his son. Wow. And get this. He healed him in response to the man's request. Jesus sovereignly ordained that the man ask and that he would answer the man's request. That is often how God's sovereignty works. In response to your prayers. That is how God's sovereignty works so often in response to your prayers, to believing in and trusting in the sovereign one to bring healing or deliverance or assurance or relief or peace or good. God ordains that his purposes be accomplished through his answers to your prayers. That is, his sovereign will is often ordained as an effect to your prayer. Those prayers serving as one of the means of his will coming to pass. That, folks, is the power of prayer. Through prayer, we are both trusting in God's sovereignty as well as acting as a component of that sovereignty. And so, when we pray and make our requests known to Jesus, we are both entrusting ourselves to and expressing belief in His sovereignty by asking in faith for Him to move. 
And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. 1 John 5. So, if you have requests, bring them to Jesus. Pray for people to be delivered from their infirmities and adversities. James says, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Pray for the salvation of your loved ones and for the friend or relative to be delivered from their bondage to alcoholism, drug addiction, homosexuality, or transgenderism. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Pray for your own situation that God will give you relief from your adversities and sufferings. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. But! Any of you got the but going on in your head right now? But! But! But what if he doesn't do what we ask? It isn't even really a question, is it? It isn't a what if. We all probably have vast amounts of experience of bringing our requests before Jesus and Him not answering in accord with those requests. Any of you know what I'm talking about? One, one person, the rest of you, you guys can go home. It's so common to our experience that there are times we greatly doubt He will answer our prayers. We really don't believe that He will move. I mean, look at me. I know many of you have asked the Lord for my healing. I know several people who pray regularly for my healing. I've prayed for it many times. And yet, here I am. Obviously, Jesus in his sovereignty has not chosen to heal me yet. Yet. So what am I supposed to do when I believe Jesus is able to heal, has a compassionate disposition to heal? Sometimes he does heal, but he doesn't heal me. I must confess, this often results in greater doubt and disappointment, which then pervades my prayers. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed half-hearted, doubt-filled prayers for myself or for someone else, ending the prayer with, Thy will be done. Because, well, because I didn't really believe that God would answer my prayers. Of course His will will be done. He's God! He's sovereign! But there are times I use His sovereignty And that phrase, thy will be done, as an excuse not to believe in him and his sovereignty. 
as an excuse to resign myself to the circumstances and protect myself and others from further disappointment. But that is not belief in Jesus' sovereignty. It's not. I prayed that way in order to guard myself from further disappointment because I did not believe that Jesus would act. I figured I knew His will and I presumed what He would do, therefore making myself sovereign and denying His sovereignty. This isn't just my experience, is it, folks? I know that I'm commanded not to doubt, but I still do. God knows my doubts. I'm commanded not to fear, still do. God knows my fears. It is then that my prayer ought to be like that of another father in Scripture who said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. So, how can I have hope instead of doubt and fear when I pray? The first answer to that question is that I need to remember that my hope is Jesus. My hope is Jesus. My ultimate good and therefore my ultimate hope is not in certain answers to prayer. It's not in being rescued or delivered from a situation that would make my hope circumstantial. My hope cannot be based in circumstances. Your hope cannot be based in circumstances. There's no assurance there then is there. Well, the circumstances change, so now I have no hope. The only way to have a solid, steadfast hope is for that hope to be in Jesus unconditionally. Oh, see, we're building. This is cool. Another aspect of this is that I can be certain that He will always answer my prayers for my highest lasting good. He will always answer your prayers for your highest lasting good. I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching on prayer from the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? <laughs> Here's a stone for you, buddy. <laughs> or if he asks for a fish, give him a sermon. Surprise! <laughs> If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So, we are to ask, seek, and knock. 
And he says that we will receive, but not necessarily what we asked for. Did you catch that? Rather, he says, we will be given good things in answer to our prayers. Sometimes our prayers are in alignment with what is our highest lasting good, like the Father's request of Jesus in this story. His faith was confirmed when his son was healed, and that led to the salvation of his entire household. But at other times, our prayers are short-sighted. Anybody ever pray a short-sighted prayer? Hey, there are like three of you. Good job. And those prayers will result in greater harm than good for us. And so rather than giving us what we ask for, which would not be for our highest lasting good, the Lord gives us that which is our highest lasting good. Does that make sense? He's not going to give you the serpent. I want a serpent, Lord! That's what we, what we think we're asking for, a fish, but we're asking for the serpent. He's like, no, no. Jesus is telling us here that God will not answer our prayers in a way that ultimately harms us. Nothing will cause God to act contrary to your highest lasting good. You should amen that one, folks. Nothing will cause God to act contrary to your highest lasting good. As a pastor with stage four cancer recently wrote, he said, I can only think and fight to believe that he, Jesus, has a better, wiser, more loving plan for me instead. I must believe there are depths in God and his purposes I cannot yet fathom, mysteries I cannot yet know, designs I cannot yet deserve, discern, glories I cannot yet see. You know, sometimes there are other issues at play that he desires more, that are ultimately better for you, that will only or best be obtained or achieved by adversity and sickness. That pastor went on to say, I've learned, though it isn't easy to accept. That's honesty. I've learned, though it isn't easy to accept, that sickness isn't God's greatest, most pressing concern. God often uses adversity to bring us or others to salvation to purify us from sin, to show a watching world his sustaining grace in our lives, to wean us from a carnal love of this world's stuff, and to lead us to and then through the death experience that will usher us into the glory where disease and dying are no more. And so, in his sovereign love, the Lord uses our present adversities for our highest lasting good. As Paul says in Romans, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so where does this leave us? 
with several truths. With the truth that Jesus is sovereign. With the truth that prayer is the vehicle through which Jesus changes things. Like when he healed the official son. With the truth that sometimes Jesus will use our prayers to miraculously heal. To miraculously deliver. And sometimes he will use it to naturally do those things. It's still miraculous because it's Jesus. But we think, oh, well, that was easy. With the truth that sometimes Jesus will not immediately answer our prayers. With the truth that we are called to continue to pray. With the truth that we are called to continue to pray, believing that he might at any moment change his answer in accordance with his will at that moment. Hey, I prayed three weeks ago for this thing and it didn't happen. God's like, well, it's three weeks later. It's a new day. That was my will three weeks ago. Does that mean that it's his will today? No. Because he's working in us and through us. Sorry, that was tangent. With the truth that prayer is perhaps the most authentic manifestation of our belief in the sovereignty of Jesus and of our utter dependence upon Him. Oh, we are dependent upon Him and His sovereignty. How do we express it? With prayer. Lord, You are sovereign. God, I know Your love for me. I know Your power. I come to You dependent upon You. And with the truth that we can entrust ourselves to Him and His will in the midst of adversity because we know that He loves us and works all things according to our good. He loves you and works all things according to your good. Therefore, you can pray and depend on Him. And then you pray. We make our requests known to God. Now, I know this makes us vulnerable, guys. I do. It opens us up to the possibility of greater disappointment. Let's go back to that father and the mother. We've done all these things. I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to dare to hope. But if you don't open yourselves up to the possibility of disappointment, then you don't open yourself up to the hope that He will move according to your prayers. What if the Father hadn't asked? Well, we can't answer that question. Can't answer it, but we can ask it. If you don't make yourself vulnerable and open yourself up to the possibility of disappointment, then you're not opening up yourself to the hope that God will deliver you from your adversity. And so ask Him in full belief of His ability and His love for you to bring deliverance, relief, healing, 
And if he doesn't yet move in that way, you ask him to use these afflictions to further conform you or that person that you're praying for to the image of Christ. And then you pray again. And then you pray again. And you pray again. And you pray and you ask and you seek and you knock and you keep knocking. You make your requests known to Him. And knowing that prayer changes things and that He will give good things to those who ask Him. He will. So ask. I close with the powerful lyrics of Mercy Me. I know you're able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. I know the sorrow, I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. You've been faithful. You've been good all of my days. Jesus, I will cling to you, come what may, as I know you're able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Our belief might be the size of a mustard seed. But you are, you are sovereign. There are so many sicknesses, Lord. So many things that people are dealing with that we don't even know about. God, remind us to call out to you for those needs. Bring healing to those who are sick. Bring deliverance, Lord, to those who are in dire straits. Lord, those people that we know that we that aren't believers, Lord, Depend on you. Bring them to yourself. Save, Lord God. Save. We trust in you for their salvation. We trust in you for deliverance. We trust in you for healing. We trust in you, Lord. May our hope be in nothing else. Come, Lord Jesus, and help us to trust in you alone. To hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.